We're here to talk about the week in education, specifically in educational technology. Audrey, nice to be with you again. Likewise. This is, I'm glad to be doing this. Me too. We, it, uh, I saw that your mom really liked our series. My mom did like the series. <laughs> <laughs> the one series so far. <laughs> so that's good. We have one listener. Well, and our commitment is to going a little bit faster today. So we're going to try and cut ourselves down. So, uh, Audrey, you had a number of really interesting posts this week. Again, uh, really enjoy reading what you're writing. Um, let's talk a little bit about Startup uh, EDU. And yeah. I'm actually in D.C. right now. Um, and uh, when, we, when we're done recording this podcast, going to be going up to watch the sort of the opening night of the Startup Weekend EDU here in, in Washington, D.C., um, for those who aren't familiar, Startup Weekend was actually founded by the Kauffman Foundation, and it's a weekend-long event, uh, runs from Friday evening through Sunday, and it's it's part of the Kauffman Foundation's you know desire to really promote entrepreneurship in this country. Um, so people come together, usually about 100 or so people, they pitch their ideas on a Friday night, um, people vote on which ideas they think are sort of doable, um, and people, teams assemble, and then over the course of the weekend, people hack together um, sort of what's called a minimal viable pro- minimum viable product. So just seeing what they can sort of build, teams of developers and designers can build. And recently, Startup Weekend has decided to focus on education in particular and building startups, uh, building education-focused startups. So um, it's been really interesting to watch sort of these two in some ways, cultures come together, the culture of the tech startup and then the culture of education. So how much is the culture of education actually being represented? Um, so far, this, this, this one will be the second official Startup Weekend EDU. And I think they're trying really hard to make sure that that happens. Um, I was at an event in Seattle a couple of weeks ago and there, out of about 125 participants, there were only four teachers. Um, last weekend, there was one in San Francisco, and about a fifth of the room were, were educators. So there were about 27 teachers. Um, so I think they're trying really hard to find ways to, to bring educators in. Otherwise, we just aren't going to, you know, we are just aren't going to be solving anyone's problems. Well, I, I don't mean to sound selfish here, but I saw that TFA had been involved, Teach for America, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, why wouldn't you reach out to Classroom 2.0? I mean, you've got all of these teachers who are already using technology. What would be the appeal of Teach for America? That actually kind of put me off a little. It felt like the politics again. I know. I mean, I think that that's one of, that's one of the things that I've been observing um, as I've attended these is just sort of watching. I think, I think some of these things do tend to be um, really political. I think, you know, the Gates Foundation has put in a bunch of money. And although it, it is philanthropic money, I think that there is often this political political bent. Um, I heard that um, you know, some of the other foundations that are interested in supporting the effort. Um, so I don't know. I mean, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. I mean, again, I think it's part of this real disconnect that I notice in my world between um, many technologists, even those in the education sector, are just grossly uninformed about what educators have been doing for a long, long time. Well, so let's take it away. We'll take it off of me here. Why wouldn't you involve ISTE? I mean, especially if you're in Washington D.C., but you'd think, you know, you've already got organizations who are really focused on this. I know, and I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why ISTE's not. Um, I don't know if ISTE's not been approached, 
or if ISTE's not been interested. Um, and I and I wonder sometimes if this feeling of and this might be a, this is sort of a different cultural shift. The difference between the startup world, the sort of new you know Silicon Valley tech startups, and some of the older, uh, more established um, education organizations and companies as well. So it is a very different. It is a very different sort of climate to be able to build something over the course of a weekend. Is a very different sort of model than the kind of companies that take years to churn out their latest product. Well, so give us a sense of who's actually getting well received. Uh, I know this texting. I mean, you even have a blog post on the texting as well. Uh, are these texting applications a part of the ones that are getting well received? It's interesting. I have seen um, in the last couple of the last couple of uh, ones I've attended, a text me- some sort of text messaging um, startup has been either the, has have, has won that um, or at least has been pitched. So I think that that's that's a in some ways that's but if you think about it, in some ways that's an easy project to build over the course of the weekend. There are the tools in place already, APIs that make it pretty simple to build a project like that. Um, you know, in 54 hours. Uh, our daughter's middle school has a policy of allowing cell phones and texting in the school, which I think cannot be commonplace. But I really appreciate it. And I, so I asked her, I said, what's, your, what's the policy? And she said, well, as long as you're not in direct conversation with a teacher, it's okay to use your cell phone. I thought, that's fascinating. Uh, but you make this great point about the cost of texting. Texting. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is one of the things that, you know, I, I think is, is always interesting to watch where sort of the, the bleeding edge technology is moving and then sort of what's, what's filtering down to sort of the rest of the world, if you will. And I, I actually think that in some ways we don't do enough with text messaging. It's what, it's what our teens, it's how our teens communicate. Um, so I think we should be thinking about building apps that use SMS long before we get worried before we try to build an, you know, an iPhone app. But that being said, the way that the, that the carriers price text messaging is that sort of, um, you know, per byte, it's actually vastly more expensive. Um, text messaging is vastly more expensive than your regular data plan. And so, you know, there's that downside, that downside to it as well, that it's, you know, it is an expensive, um, it is expensive, even with unlimited texting plans. So you have this uh, opportunity for some, you know, for different services to provide this kind of messaging at a cheaper rate. But but then you've got this diversified group of accounts, right? So yeah. you don't have the universal inbox. For a period of time, Twitter felt to me like it, w- it had become the universal inbox, that somebody could always reach me by, uh, you know, uh, tweeting, direct messaging me or, or using the at symbol. But it felt, feels like that's gone away. So is there somebody in a position to actually become kind of the universal universal inbox rather than the specific carrier text I, messaging accounts? I would sure like – I mean, my, I would sure like to see it be Twitter. Um, the – uh, for for sort of for all of for all of those reasons, I think that it's really a great sort of short um, information network as opposed to sort of just a social network. Uh, I have to wonder if again this is a place where Google, especially with Google Voice um, and the the SMS capabilities that it enables, if if it could do something like that as well. Yeah, if it didn't take an hour to learn how to use Google Voice. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Google, Google Voice always has the bonus of you get the email with its attempt to transcribe right. what the message is. So. I, I think the humor of that is more uh, appreciated by me than the actual value of it. I think so, too. <laughs> okay, so tell us about adaptive learning platforms, learning algorithms, social learning. What, what, what's going on here that's creating such big dollar interest? Yeah, two two pretty sizable investments over the past couple of weeks. Um, one we mentioned last week, Newton raised $33 million in its latest round of funding. And that brings up to $54 million in total that it's raised. And then Grokit um, raised $7 million, uh, bringing up to its total up to $24 million. I mean, neither, that, you know, neither of those figures are anything to sneeze at. And that means, you know, in, in business speak, that both of these companies are valued at you know, well, in the case of in the case of Newton, probably a hundred and fifty million dollar company. Um, so, you know, what is it that they're doing? And it's, I think, trying to devise this way to build um, adaptive learning platforms. So, is there an algorithm that we can use to help deliver the perfectly personalized content to students based on their knowledge, on their skills, uh, on their needs? Um, and that's something that both of these companies are, are, are chasing. Others are as well, but these are sort of the newer, sort of two new companies in this space. So is this real? Meaning, uh, you know, the, the hurdle for me is that uh, the same daughter who's at the school with a great texting policy has fallen in love with her uh, eighth grade English teacher. I mean, he's just, tra- he's just transfixed her. He, she's just loving the content and the discussions. And it's that, what, it's that educational experience a parent is just waiting to have happen to your child. Uh, Khan Academy is expanding. You know, you've got these um, uh, adaptive learning platforms. Are they too systemic or systematic? Are they missing this human piece? Well, that's, that's one of the things that I find makes Grokit um, really interesting to me because I think, that they, I think that they recognize that even though they do have an adaptive learning platform, I think they're also recognizing the importance of the social element. And in some ways it reminds me of the debate between uh, Google and Facebook that you know, Google developed an algorithm for search and it seemed as though that that the mathematical solution to finding what you wanted on the internet, or that the solution to finding what you wanted on the internet was a mathematical solution. And then Facebook came along, and Facebook suggests to us, actually finding what you want on the internet might be finding what your friends are doing. And that social piece, Google hasn't, Google doesn't quite get that. And I think Grokit recognizes the importance of social when it comes to learning. And so it's working to sort of pair students together so that they study together, working, um, working to match people uh, when, with instructors, and thinking about how the social as well as, the, as well as an algorithm can create a better learning environment. But it is still based on test prep, which is something that I have a hard time um, liking. I think that you know the whole sort of the whole world of test prep is really, in some ways, perpetuating the an achievement gap for those who can afford, you know, those who can afford to take extra lessons to do better on the SATs. Fascinating. Okay, South by Southwest with an EDU spin. 
Uh, yes. The second year, uh, having submitted three sessions for South by Southwest EDU this year and not having even gotten an email from them <laughs> indicating that things were going public or that there was even this uh, additional launch EDU, <laughs> uh, I'm left sort of wondering, is this, how real is this? You know, I, I don't know. I didn't attend, uh, despite you know my work in the technology world, I've never been to South by Southwest Interactive. I didn't attend South by Southwest EDU last year. Um, so it's sort of a, a new thing. I'm intrigued, um, but I must say I'm, I'm also feeling very sort of left out of the loop myself. I actually stumbled across this news item based on Google alerts I have for ed tech startup. So yeah, not, not, not particularly well promoted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I need to be letting people know that my, the, the, uh, I think you, you're, you're in one of the ones I yes. submitted, right? Yes. Do, do you remember which one it is? Um, uh, hack your education. Oh, good. And, and uh, here's the problem. They put them in an order so that if you go to look at the panel picker, you see the ones, if people submitted more than one, they, they get dropped down into these sort of separate buckets so hack the hack your education wasn't the first bucket. My um, one on teacher 2.0 was. So I'm not even sure people are going to see it, but we'll do some promotion this week and let people know at least that it's up. There you go. Okay, here's some language I really hated to read. Uh, interactive TV that seeks to inspire kids and their parents to get off the couch and into the action, working cooperatively with their favorite characters to have fun and learn at the same time. Uh, by using the controller-free magic of Connect, uh, educational design director for Microsoft says, we can encourage kids to use their motor skills and learn using their body and immersive experiences. Yeah. Why, why did that hit me the wrong way? Well, this was, this was funny. This was, you know, Microsoft announced this week that it's partnering with several um, well-known education, uh, early education tel television shows to build new series, um, new interactive TV series for the Microsoft Connect for its Xbox um, game controller that uh, um, that uses gesture rather than holding on to an actual controller. And it, what was sort of stunningly wonderful time for this was the same day the American Academy of Pediatrics issued a report saying, "Yes, we're absolutely sure now after you know twenty some odd years of." research that television is bad for toddlers. So, you know, how funny to announce that Sesame Street, um, you know, you can watch Sesame Street and interact with Sesame Street uh, with your Xbox. I guess maybe the theme here for me is just this difficulty of when education is a business, really knowing what the motivation is yeah. and, and the degree to which you know, uh, really, we talk. We seem to talk about everything in financial and economic terms, up to and including education. Now, where where it feels like um, there ought to be a separation. I think it's one of those interesting things too. When I I see, and I see the sort of an explosion of this now that we're seeing. You know, all of these new uh, apps for uh, you know for our smartphones and for tablets and even on even on the web. You know, you, you, you insert the adjective educational in front of just about anything um, that's geared towards children, and somehow that just makes it so. I wonder if we'll look back at this period of time, 
say the last 25 or 30 years and and see it as a time in which we we basically kind of put a money value on everything that that everything was sort of driven by the financial imperative um and, and maybe that's just sort of wishful thinking that it was different before but it felt to me like when i went to college that there really was this value in education as a liberating experience and it wasn't tied to jobs and it wasn't tied to money as tightly as it was sort of the narrative that we hear now yeah i mean and, and to you know and a branding i think that that's that's this other that's this other piece as well um I think that it's you know some of these some of these brands that we associate with uh, you know with with kids in education. It's hard to sometimes extract that from you know what's actually going on in terms of the learning. Okay, I have to recuse myself from the Blackboard conversation since I work <laughs> part time for Blackboard. But there was a comment in the post that was really interesting to me. It was from uh, Micah Vandegrift, and he talked about ownership issues related to, in this particular case, higher ed uh, material produced by professors. This is not the first time this has reared its head. There was that professor who sued the student for posting lecture notes online. Um, how, how complicated are these issues of what, what can be made public and who owns them? Well, I think that this is, you know, I think that this is actually a, um, a really, a really fascinating moment and, and something that's actually going to turn back onto the universities, and I'll, let me explain. So Blackboard announced this week that, um, that it's, it's going to make, add a share button to its, to its learning management system so that professors, should they choose, can share the contents, their syllabi, their handouts with the public. And that's actually something that Blackboard has prevented. In the past, you had to be enrolled in a class to see what to see the content of that material online. So this is sort of being, you know, this is sort of being touted as a move towards open educational resources on campus. But I think as Micah points out, as as I tried to in my story as well, it's actually not just a matter of the technology infrastructure of the LMS that's that needs to be handled here. Um, it isn't just that universities haven't been able to share content on the internet because openly on the internet because they use Blackboard. I think Universities haven't quite figured out what what it's going to look like. How are they going to plan? You know, how are they going to plan sort of university wide um, to to have a strategy for open access to support OER? How will that how will that dovetail with their other online course offerings? Um, I think that these are really complicated uh, decisions. That it's, it's sort of easy in some ways to sort of point the finger at Blackboard and say, oh, walled garden. But you know, universities have sort of embraced the walled garden in a lot of ways for, for a lot of sort of internal structural um, intellectual property reasons. And so having a share button is commendable. I think it's a big move for Blackboard, um, but I don't think it's sort of an easy, it's not an easy fix. Probably some interesting future conversations just about the uh, environment of universities and the degree to which they do or do not reward collaboration Yes, as well. Okay, so tell me the case for a digital public library of America. This, was, this is something that I've been um, tracking on for a long time as my, my, my academic background is actually nothing to do with technology or, or journalism. Uh, my, my background, I have a master's degree in folklore, so I have an, a background as an archivist, 
and was working on a dissertation in literature. So I'm a big fan of the work that librarians and, um, and folks in the humanities are doing to sort of think about what it means to make um, content, our cultural heritage, if you will, available online and open to the public. And the Digital Public Library of America is an initiative um, to create just, just what it sounds like, a public, a public library for the entire country that's available online. But, you know, easier said than done um, for, for a lot of reasons. Um, the, the lawsuits against Google with its digitization efforts, the lawsuits against the Hathi Trust um, with its digitization efforts are two just small indications of some of the legal struggles that, that we're facing in getting, uh, getting content, digitizing it, and making it publicly accessible. Um, so some interesting people, uh, all sorts of interesting people from the Library of Congress, National Archives, Internet Archives um, here in D.C. today thinking through what it, what, it, what it would look like. Will there be a building? Is it just online? Is it a website? Can you check out books? Lots of questions. Well, do we have some cultural questions around libraries as well? And it feels like the librarian is this great model of the lead learner. And yet most librarians will tell you that they're a little bit under siege and, and libraries are getting closed. Why, why are we having trouble figuring this out? That's one of the things that sort of fascinates me right now about this as well is that on one hand I do, I, you know, I think that especially with the move to eBooks um, and the, you know, the sort of constant budget struggles that many public libraries face, um, then the move to eBooks is sort of this whole new round of struggles that they're having to go through. And yet I consistently see um, the librarians and the archivists that I know are sort of on the leading edge of thinking about what it means to digitize information, um, what it means to make it um, discoverable, accessible, to mark it up with metadata. Um, and so I think that the librarian is, uh, is, is indeed under siege, but I also think they're absolutely the model for how we should systematically and creatively, actually, think through um, think through moving our world from print to digital. So a little bit of a plug here. The free Library 2.011 conference that I'm co-chairing is November 2nd through 4th. That's at library2011.com. And we'll have 160 sessions. We've got 3,600 registrants from 149 countries, and many of them asking these same questions. So if anybody listening is interested in that, uh, that is a free two-day conference. We, we say it's three days because when we include Australia, it makes the dates wonky. But that's <laughs> that's what we've got going. Okay, so we're doing well on time here. Excellent. We're, we're going to move to your news roundup. Yes. The 32nd anniversary of the signing of the Department of Education Organization Act. I'm not sure I knew that we didn't have a Department of Education before 32 years ago. You know, I when I saw that story, I was actually fairly shocked as well. Um, there have been so many discussions, particularly, you know, as we move into, you know, full bore into campaign season, so many discussions about, you know, what the role of the, of the Department of Education should be, should there be a Department of Education, that I, you know, thought that I bristle and thought, well, you know, it's always been so. How, how dare people even sort of raise this, raise this question? But yes, actually, uh, this week, um, 32 years ago this week, uh, President, President Carter signed, uh, signed the law to, to create the Department of Education. 
So what's the argument when someone says, do we still need a Department of Education? I think that part of it is, you know, I think that, you know, I think we're seeing particularly now that we're taking another look at the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. I think we're starting to recognize the some of the federal control over education hasn't necessarily been good policy. Um, and so, so do, should the federal government dictate what students learn, how teachers teach, um, or should it be state control, local control? Um, I think that the, you know. I think that there's lots of discussions about what you know, teachers, uh, teachers, teachers unions, and what all this looks like that makes the that makes the Department of Education right now sort of a lightning rod for a lot of federal local control issues. Well, so aside from the humor, what's the connection with? Uh, the Senate vote to limit the amount of potatoes served in school lunches. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, um, as part of you know, as part of the first lady's uh, push to sort of get America um, have America become healthier eaters, the Obama administration proposed that we limit the uh, uh, limit the uh, number of ways in which a potato can be served in the school lunchroom, and the Senate, uh, I guess, under pressure from the potato lobby. Decided to veto, uh, veto or block, you know, block the block the proposal, and I think it's just one of these funny, you know, it's just one of these funny ways in which, you know, that politics, you know, the ways in which politics do work, and what sort of best for children, best for the American children, um, doesn't necessarily uh, show up very often in 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 this country's pol- uh, policies. Not that Moving. I love potatoes. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> Okay, so uh, Purdue University uh, launches an app for students, um, and and people can read more about the specifics of that app in your. Again, it's an it's a just an iOS app, and as an again as an avid Android user, I keep wondering, every phone company has a phone that's Android compatible. Why are things getting released as um, iPhone apps and not as Android apps? I think that there. I mean, uh, my my guess is that there's a, a number a number of reasons why that is. One of them is that although Android is a far more popular platform, there's such a wide disparity between what what and how an app works on the various different handsets. And so you can have an Android phone on T-Mobile and an Android a different kind of handset. Um, on T-Mobile as well, and they function very differently. And so I think that there's something about the consistency of the um, the iPhone experience that makes it an easier first move for many developers. There's a lot of sense to that. Uh, when you have that good standard and structure base, it makes it easier to, to create things. So um, kind of keeping with that theme, and without diving too deeply into the open source side of uh, Android, which maybe we'll save for a later show, the question of whether or not Android is actually even open source at this point, um, a slide rocket announces that it's making its tools available to students and teachers via the Google Apps Marketplace. I'm a big Google fan. I'm not even trying to know what the Google Apps Marketplace is. Well, you know, Google Apps, the Google Apps Marketplace is a, fa- is a fairly recent addition, and it's a way for particularly, I mean, I think it works particularly well if you're, you, you know, for the Google Apps for education users. 
So um, you can go to the marketplace and you can set up and add certain apps so that everyone in your um, sort of in your school or in your class, depending on the permissions, has um, easy access through the through the Google sign-on process to these various tools. Um, it's another way as well for um, particularly for education technology startups to get you know to get their product in front of teachers and administrators as well. So do you have a sense that being in the Google Apps Marketplace really has an impact on a project or a product like that? Um, <laughs> I've talked to a lot of startups. For a long time, I actually recommended to the ed tech startups that I would uh, talk to, especially if they, had, you know, if they had a web app. I would say, oh, you should, do you have an API? Have you considered integrating with the Google App Marketplace? It's a great way to, just what I said, a great way to get you know teachers to see and learn about you, and then having spoken to some of the some of the um, uh, you know some of the startups who have their product there, they they don't see it as that great of a as a great way to spread the news about their product. Um, they said that you know they do better by um, by other recommendation ways. That being said, they said that some of their most active and really engaged users they find through Google Apps. And so I think that it's possibly about the sort of the sort of school culture that would lead a school to become a Google Apps user. Um, that perhaps it's a sort of different technology climate at that school. And so those those teachers, those students are often very engaged with the products that they use through Google Apps. I'm going to hope that you'll write <clears throat> you'll write a blog post about uh, Google Apps for schools so that I can learn more. Uh, so last week we bashed on Google a little. Uh, and I feel badly kind of focusing on them again this week. But they announced that they're going to start selling the Chrome OS netbooks um, um, outright rather than necessarily by subscription. And uh, I was struck by the pricing. So, Yeah, this I don't I have a hard time. You know, I really have a hard time sort of getting where we're. I feel like Google has really a, had a great opportunity with the Chromebooks to. Um, provide something really a valuable value, really of value to schools that are starting to sort of get the idea of having one-to-one -one programs, and that price point just is so painful. Um, I think that you know if you talk to a lot of schools, at four hundred and fifty dollars a pop, um, it just seems like a lot of money. It seems like a lot of money to spend on what is not just a netbook, but it is a web-only netbook. Um, that being said, though, the flip side of it is that that's, that includes all of the software. So oftentimes if you get a netbook, you know, uh, a Windows netbook, um, you're still going to have to pay the licensing fees for, uh, you know, for the OS. And then you'll have to get the, you know, Office suite and that'll cost you more money. And you pay the, you know, the charges add up not so much in the machine itself, but in the software licensing. And there's, there's none of that with the netbook. Well, help me figure that out because if I buy the netbook, and I'm a big netbook fan, I'm a big Google fan, and I run Chrome as a browser on that netbook, are there tools that I don't have access to that come included in the service with the Chrome OS netbook? Uh, the well, the, it's fully integrated with with the Google uh, with the Google apps for EDU, which makes it really uh. easy to administer. I mean, that's one of the beauties as well is that. You know, if you if you're working in that administrative um, scenario, that means you don't have to worry about installing software on everyone's machines. 
um, it's it's really I think it makes the the role of of the IT a lot simpler. Interesting. Sort of complicating this is the fact that once I bought a an Android tablet, I've just basically stopped using my netbook. <laughs> so I'll be, I'll have to be, I'll have to think about that and it's sort of the implications for that. See, and I'm the opposite, which is funny. Is I recent? I mean, I especially as a technology journalist, I try all these new tools out. I had an iPad. I had an Android tablet. I've sold both of them. I kept my Chromebook. Um, I don't use it. I use it as my backup computer. But I felt like that was a if I needed to have a go-to machine that I could actually work on, it would be the Chromebook before it would be a tablet. Interesting. Okay, help me with some numbers here. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Roald Dahl, uh, his <laughs> his uh, estate has uh, reached an agreement to make some of his books available as part of this e-reader literacy program in sub-Saharan Africa. 56,000 books being delivered on Kindles, but only to 600 students? What am I missing here? Yeah, I think that the role, I think the World Reader is a really great organization, and I think that they are, um, they're slowly, you know, slowly distributing slowly distributing Kindles full of a really great library, a really powerful library that now includes uh, James and the Giant Peach, um, thanks to the Roald Dahl uh, estate. But yeah, I think the rollout is, is, is pretty slow. But I think there's a lot of questions. I mean, you know, how do you, how do you recharge, uh, you know, how do you recharge these devices? When I heard about this, I actually heard about this on an airplane sitting next to the guy at Amazon who's, I think, responsible for the Kindle Fire program. Mm -hmm. When he told me about this, I nearly jumped out of my seat. It was as though the One Laptop for Child program was an overreach because this felt, this felt so smart. Yes. You know, this I mean, it's a sort of single-purpose device, right? But to make books accessible, wow. Why, you know, why didn't I think of that? Right. I mean, I think that that's. I think that the. I think that this is such a great project um, because it really is. It really is about literacy at, at its core. Um, and, and if you think about sort of a literacy mission in print, that's 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 actually not not possible either. I mean, there's all sorts of difficulties in getting books and distributing books to people. But the Kindles in these situations, even though they've been handed out to just sort of in some ways a few students. Those Kindles are being passed around and shared as well, and so um, I think that that's that's the power of that's the power of this as well. It isn't just sort of one uh, one Kindle per child. It can actually it's sort of it is one library per per family and per village, and that's very powerful. As somebody who just loves books and has sort of followed the research on the impact of books in a child's life, you know, homes with books, this just seems brilliant to me. Uh, it seems very game-changing. As, as as quiet as a story as that may be, I, I read that and thought, wow, this is just phenomenal. Yeah, and uh, I think, yeah, World Reader, it's, it's a nonprofit, and I think that, you know, I think you're able to donate to it. It's, a, it's definitely a, an important project. Okay, we're doing well on time, but we've got to keep going here. Okay. So teacher cheating scandals. What a shock. Wait, you create a s system for measuring that has high stakes and people will actually cheat? 
we haven't ever seen that before. <laughs> yeah, uh, Freakonomics, which is um, I'm a I'm a well here we are making a podcast. I'm a huge podcast fan, and Freakonomics is one of my favorites. Um, particularly as someone I also am really really interested in sort of data and science um, and sort of numbers. And Freakonomics always has a fascinating way of thinking through the numbers in our world. And their latest podcast, which you can download. Um, through via the website or through iTunes is actually about cheating teachers, and it, it exactly has a look at high stakes testing and the incentives not to do well, but actually to cheat um, that come along with with that. It's a really great listen. Well, we've had a lot of uh, of that same kind of data information around the business world and how knowledge uh, jobs that are knowledge based uh, don't do well in traditional um, um, metrics measurements that may be incentivized for labor for manual labor, but but appear to have the opposite effect for knowledge work. But I was so interested in this in part because. Um, they 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 felt in the podcast like there were two solutions. Either you find a way to discipline the teachers or you make it harder to cheat. And and I was left thinking, well, what if you actually did away <laughs> with the metrics? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that that's I think that that's um, that's certainly I think what something I would like to see without going too far down. <laughs> <laughs> Another podcast. Another podcast. Okay, so this is our final note today. University of Phoenix um, releases their quarterly earnings, and uh, there's a decrease in revenue, and there's a pretty significant drop in enrollment. Yes. What's happening? Well, you know, the University of Phoenix um, has, you know, was for a long time the sort of, I use this word, but sort of the premier uh, for-profit university offered a lot of online classes which were flexible, people who felt as though they wanted to get, um, needed a bachelor's degree, could take classes that worked with their schedule. Um, but then I think that the, the university's been in trouble for what, for what have been a lot of really predatory recruitment practices. Pitching, um, you know, pitching the University of Phoenix courses to people who just weren't college ready. Of course, the university, you know, the, the way in which it works is that people get financial aid, student loans primarily, and the University of Phoenix gets paid via the student loans, whether or not people complete their degree, whether or not they complete a, a class, let alone complete their degree. So the government has been sort of cracking down on some of those practices, looking at the for-profit universities um, in general, um, sort of looking to make sure that they're actually, um, you know, sort of behaving well. And I think as you can see that the University of Phoenix is sort of suffering on the other side of things, fewer, enrollment, fewer, fewer enrollments and uh, smaller profits. Audrey? It's really fun to talk to somebody who's so as smart as you. <laughs> the The blog is hackeducation.com. It's Audrey Waters, and I'm Steve Hargadon, and we've been talking about the news of the week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Audrey. Can't wait for next week. Great. Thanks a lot, Steve. Talk to you next week. Bye now. <laughs>